This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We've talked for a while about uh, asylum claims, asylum seekers uh, coming to Canada. Uh, Once the Trump uh, presidency came into effect, it seemed that uh, we were getting a lot of people uh, jumping the queue, whether it was in Quebec or Manitoba, trying to uh, get across the border and 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 basically looking for uh, you know a better situation. Uh, an increase in asylum claims could uh, could see an 11 year wait list in Canada, and the hearings could uh, run up towards three billion dollars to support those claimants. To talk more about all of this, Giddy Maman is with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluk and Kingwell LLP, immigration lawyer, and on the line with us now. Hello, Giddy. How are you today? I'm great, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well. What are your thoughts about this uh, this claim that uh, uh, this could take 11 years to get somebody in and uh, upwards of $2.97 billion uh, to process all of this? What are your thoughts? Well, uh, it's not really surprising to me that we finally see some documentation. You know, you and I have been talking about this for several months now. Uh, about what uh, I, I, I think is going to happen, and that's starting to unfold. We're starting to see a rapid increase in the numbers. Uh, you know, for example, in 2015, in the entire year, we received about 16,000 refugee claims. Uh, this year already, uh, as of April, we received 12,040. We're already scheduled for about 36,000. So that's 20,000 more than just about a year or two ago. So those numbers are going to increase, and we haven't even started um, – warming up. You know, uh, school is now finishing in the United States. Uh, Some families are now going to start to pack up their things after the kids are are done in school and they're going to start heading towards the border. So that 11-year prediction by the IRB to have a hearing, that is from the time the person arrives in Canada till the time that their refugee claim is heard, is 11 years. That's assuming they don't have any new resources. Uh, So... um, you know, if the if the the curve gets steeper, as I think it will, uh, you know, we're not going to see an 11 year wait because it's 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 impossible for for us to allow people to come into the country and sit here for 11 years while their status. That was my uh, next question. What happens while that process is going on? What happens well, to the person? Well, what happens first of all, it creates a tremendous pull factor. If you come to Canada and you know that we have to let you in to make a refugee claim and you know you're going to be here for 11 years, well, all of your buddies in the United States are going to say, hey, that's a good idea. Maybe I'm going to lose my refugee claim. Even if I don't have a refugee claim, I can just invent one. I can come to, to Canada, stay here for 11 years. I, I'll get a work permit. I may get social assistance. I'll get health coverage. And if I get kicked out after 11 years, so be it. But at least I have a good 11 years in Canada. So it creates a tremendous pull factor. Right now, the board is hearing cases in about five or six months. But if this increases without a rapid and significant increase of its resources, which the government in its budget you know, didn't allow for, then this is the this is where we end up. So, who are these asylum seekers? Are they are they the same as refugees? We we don't know, right? We don't know. What we do know is that there is about eleven or twelve million people who have no documentation in the United States. They need a place to settle. Canada, how would they have How would they have got to the United States without any documentation? Well, they could have entered uh, legally and just simply overstayed, or they could have entered Canada. Uh, or they could have entered the United States just, you know, uh, through a hole in the wall. 
uh, and that's how they would be in the United States. Now, you know, it's been pretty comfortable for, for them because nobody has really been chasing them. There has been a policy of really not uh, unleashing the full force of uh, ICE in the United States. So, uh, you know, there you know, there's a sanctuary city policies that a lot of uh, uh, municipalities are adopting. So things have been comfortable. But now with the Trump administration, uh, the writing is on the wall. Something is going to be done to get these people out, and they need to, to find somewhere to go. So if they know they can come to Canada and they're only going to get to stay for four or five months because in four or five months the refugee board is going to determine that they're not a refugee claim, it's not a real pull factor. But if that board gets bogged down, by an overwhelming number of claims. And now, you know, it'll take two, three years, four years, maybe five years before your refugee claim is heard. Well, that's only going to increase people's interest in coming to Canada to make a claim. And that's, you know, that once you go down that spiral, it's, uh, you, you, you can't get out. It seemed that this all took off once Trump was elected. Did that change the game? The rules stayed exactly the same. The dynamics changed. Uh, before, when you were allowed to live in the United States in relative peace, you know, you went about your business, uh, you know, you went to work, no one bothered you. That's, that's terrific. But as soon as you see Donald Trump coming in and he says, you know, we're going to start kicking people out, we're going to keep them out with a big fat wall, uh, they're starting to think, holy cow, my, my lifestyle here is in jeopardy. Uh, I have to find uh, some other solution. And Canada is that solution. We, we, you know, uh, you know, our, our Prime Minister Justin Trudeau basically announced a block party and said, "You know what? Uh, we're, you know, we have open arms for the, the the refugees of the world." Well, they heard that call, and uh, you know, here they come, and now we we now have to uh, address that issue. Uh, the CBSA has been reported to uh, have started to uh, detain some of these people to sort of pressure them. Um, into maybe, you know, going back. Uh, we don't really know what the, the government is going to do to try to deter um, asylum seekers from coming. So to answer your question, we don't know if they're real refugees, if they're economic refugees. Uh, we, we don't know what's motivating them to come here other than they, they'd rather be in Canada than where they are now. And this has all drastically changed since the Trump election, correct? It's like, it, it, I mean, this has all, always been going on, but it, it headed... It hit, we headed for higher numbers once Trump got electric. Got elected. That's right, because look, the United States is a great place to live if you can stay there. But if if you're if if you just saw your neighbor getting picked up and being deported, uh, and you you feel that you're vulnerable, you're going to look for somewhere that's that is going to be more attractive. Our acceptance rate is a little bit higher. Our system is a little bit more generous. The social benefits are significantly better. Um, so why not take your shot in Canada if you can? So uh, how do we look at people who are in the United States illegally and then want to come to Canada? Does the fact that they were in the States illegally have any bearing at all? Uh, no, it, it doesn't. We, we are signatory to the um, uh, Refugee Convention, the UN Refugee Convention. Anyone, that means anyone who comes to our shores... Uh, is entitled to make a refugee claim, um, you know, if uh, uh, you know if they end up in, on Canadian soil. There is a safe third country agreement, we, which you and I have spoken about before, mm -hmm. uh, which basically says if you make that refugee claim at a at a land border, you're not going to get into Canada. You have to make your claim in the United States and take your chances there. 
but that doesn't apply between ports of entry. So if you cross a field, you have an absolute right to make a refugee claim in Canada. And so, whether, whether it has merit or not is, 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 is irrelevant. That's going to be determined at your refugee hearing. And until that time you have the refugee hearing, you get the work permit, etc. cetera. Uh, and as we've talked about before, Giddy, is this just not promoting the fact that you should be entering Canada illegally rather than legally? I mean, it's best you have better chances if you just jump the border in Manitoba or Quebec rather than you know going through a normal scenario. I mean, how, how does the government deal with that? Because basically what they're doing is they're encouraging people to come in here illegally. Well, that's or, exactly or, or, right. There, there's no clearer way that you can, you, can, you can make that statement. If you approach Canada and seek asylum at a proper port of entry, your chances of success are zero, right? You're not eligible unless you have relatives in Canada, very close relatives, so your chances for most people are zero. If you go you know, a kilometer that way or a kilometer the other way uh, and you just go through a hole in the fence, you have an absolute right to make a refugee claim in Canada. And so, uh, so this, is, this is the anomaly, and I, and I think that I, I have no doubt there are people who are listening to us right now scratching their head and saying that, that just makes no sense. Exactly. But that's, so how but, is but that's the, the way it is. What, what do you want me to tell you? That's exactly the way the situation So how is this fair or right for anyone other than the person that's skipping the queue? It's certainly not fair for the, for the immigrant that's trying to do it right. legally. This agreement was crafted in a, in a different era right. where, you know, the Americans and the Canadians were more or less handling refugees the same way. Your chances on that side were about the same as the chances on this side. So, you know, that's fine. You know, water always seeks its own level. There, there was no reason to go either this way or that way across the border. But now right. it's tilted. Now your chances of staying in the United States are pretty poor. And now you, you have this great sucking sound into Canada, you know, through an announcement that we're open for business, our policy is, is humane and, and, and compassionate, and we welcome the world's refugees. And so when you have a push factor from the states and a pull factor from Canada, you have completely changed the dynamics. And now this agreement makes absolutely no sense uh, from, you know, the, the, from our point of view. So where does this leave the two countries then? I mean, is this not something that we need to deal with together? Uh, no. The United States, uh, I, I can assure you that we are now in separate boats. You saw our foreign minister saying, you know, we, we have to look after ourselves now. The United States is charting its own course, and we have to sort of chart our own. The United States' interest is to get rid of 11 or 12 million people. They want them out. They don't really care where they go. They just want them gone. Um, so that's the dynamic on that side. And if, if Canada ends up paying for it, that, that, that's our problem. Canada's interest, you know, so far, our policy has been to treat refugees with open arms and generously. So that might need to be revisited on our side. I can assure you, I, I, I think you'll agree with me, that Donald Trump is not about to have a change of heart hmm. in terms of what he's going to do with 11 or 12 million people. He wants them gone. And, you know, he wants to tighten up the refugee process. So we now have to formulate uh, either a new policy or we have to set limits or, or we have to do something. Uh, you know, I don't think we're going to build our own great wall. So we have to come up with something. But the ball is not in the court of the United States. The ball is clearly on the Canadian side of the border. Should the Prime Minister have opened his arms before these were all, this process was all in order and, and, and prepared for this mass influx? 
I, I think he needed to do a lot of thinking about a lot of things on immigration before he spoke. Um, he should have thought about, you know, even when he announced the, the program for the 25,000 Syrian refugees, and he said he'd have them in by the end of the year. That creates that created chaos for our intelligence services and our law enforcement services and the immigration department. Uh, he should have thought more carefully about that. And it, and and when he says, you know, Canada's open for refugees, it sounds great. It's a great soundbite. It makes you look very popular. But now you have to deal with the consequences. What they're trying to figure out is how do we roll that back a little bit without, uh, you know, without making him, you know, look mm-hmm. like he's eating his words. That's going to be a bit of a political challenge. But there, what is very clear is that the numbers are going to spike. I, I, I'm going to, you know, you know, stake my reputation on it. They are going to spike much higher than the board is predicting. So the 11-year figure that you're talking about mathematically, I think, is, is, is very, very low. But we're never going to see that because we're going to have to shut the door. We just can't walk into the situation and see a tidal wave of people coming. We're going to have to shut the door at some point. Uh, lots of chatter. This all started with Emerson, Alberta. What are things like there now? Is their scenario improving as far as having the having uh, the resources they need in order to process all these people? Um, again, you know, uh, Scott, it depends where you sit. Uh, em- Emerson at, at the beginning was very generous and open-armed and, you know, they, they were very helpful, and I think their attitude was one of, uh, of, of, of wanting to assist, and that's terrific. But there's going to come a point where that sentiment is going to turn and say, you know what, this is too much for us. We're, we're losing our sense of who we are. Uh, we're being overwhelmed with this. We don't have the resources. Uh, this has got to stop. And if that does stop in Emerson, that, again, the, the, the water will just flow elsewhere, that that crowd will just move to some other community. So I, I think Emerson is sort of the canary in the coal mine. We're going to see how things play out in Emerson, because that's the future for other border communities. So as a person who founded a firm based on bringing immigrants to this country, I mean, that's what you do and your people right. do for a living. You bring people to this country. How do you view all this? Well, I've always been sympathetic to refugees. I continue to be ref- uh, you know, sympathetic to refugees, and I wouldn't mind if we increased our quota our annual quota for refugees. I didn't like the fact that Justin Trudeau said he was going to increase it in an election year and only in an election year. If, if we were truly generous, we would have increased it for all years going forward. But most importantly, as an immigration lawyer and as a refugee advocate, I would say that I want to control which refugees we take in. If we're going to take 25,000 or 50,000 or 100,000, we should be in a position to pick the ones that we want to offer protection to. We shouldn't have to be forced to accept or process endless numbers of refugee claims. We have refugees still stuck in refugee camps that have been there for years and for years and for years who we, we really should step up to the plate and help. In the meantime, our, we are now being distracted by our southern border and the people who are presenting them in, in our, you know, in front of us, we we need to rethink the entire refugee program uh, from bottom up because our dynamics have changed now because our neighbor has changed in its approach. You talk about you know uh, plucking a, refu- a refugee out of a camp somewhere, and and I think that's what more most Canadians think of when they think of refugees. Uh, aren't those people in a lot more dire straits than people that are crossing in from America? Well, it, generally speaking, yes. I cannot tell you, Scott, that every person 
who comes to the border is or is not a refugee. I haven't heard their story. Maybe they're in, in tremendous danger where they come from. I, I have no idea. But what I do know is that Canadians can't afford to process thousands and thousands of refugees in order to find that one diamond, that one real legitimate case, when we can just sort of turn our back a little bit to that, come up with some sort of uh, national policy about claims from the United States, and then turn around, look at the refugee camps where we know those people have just fled terrible, terrible places of conflict. Uh, so that becomes a cheaper exercise, a more obvious exercise. And at the end of the day, as a refugee lawyer, what I want to do is I want to protect those who are, at, uh, who are the most vulnerable, the ones who are at most immediate risk. Someone who's coming from New Jersey, for example, to the United States, sure, he may be a risk if he goes back, but he's not in immediate risk, the same way that somebody uh, is, you know, holed up at some part of their country that is, that, that, who are trying to escape the conflict zone. So that's, those are my thoughts about what we should do. And in fact, the Minister of Immigration says he wants to rethink this whole thing, and it's about time. It really is about time. Is this a case of, you know, as you mentioned, this is a completely new world now with Donald Trump in office. So is this about completely redrawing this whole process? Well, we have a, a convention, uh, uh, the UN convention, uh, was uh, uh, was signed in 1951. That's you know, uh, there's very few things that we have around from 1951 that we haven't you know taken a second look at right. uh, in in that many years. And I, I think we need to take a second look at it. And and quite frankly, if Canada decided to to uh, leave that convention and come up with its own policy, uh, still committed to, sa- to to saving the same number of people year over year, even more, I wouldn't mind. But they have to be people who we choose to help, not people who we are um, obliged you know, to help. I- exactly right. We have to have control over our, our immigration and refugee policy the way we have control over our budget, our military, our, uh, our tax, uh, our, our, our medical and health care uh, programs. We, we have to have control. We can't have an open checkbook. It's, it's impossible to work that way. Giddy Maman has been with us, senior partner, founder of Maman Sandaluk Kingwell LLP, immigration lawyer and refugee advocate. Giddy, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Be well. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The uh, circus that is the Donald Trump presidency seems to continue. The special counsel that is overseeing uh, the Russian investigation is talking with senior intelligence officials. One of the things they're examining is whether President Trump attempted to obstruct justice. To talk more about all of this, Mark Tushnet, uh, William Nelson uh, uh, Cromwell professor at law of law, sorry, at Harvard University and is with us now. Hello, Mark. How are you today? Okay. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. Uh, when we saw uh, former FBI Director uh, James Comey testify, uh, President Trump was very adamant about uh, Comey saying that he was not under investigation. Would it have been perhaps a little premature to say that? Uh, uh, well, he wasn't under, under investigation when Comey said it. Um, that's true. Uh, but apparently there is some investigation going on now, so... He shouldn't have been as cocky as he, uh, he he was. So what are your thoughts on this? Where do you see this going, especially after the testimony of Jeff Sessions yesterday? So, um, Well, pretty clearly the uh, special counsel is proceeding methodically to uh, investigate, to find out what, uh, what happened, 
and in particular what kinds of things the president said that might go into uh, making up a, a case of, of obstruction of justice. Um, obstruction is a, um, a crime that requires that you intend to interfere with a proceeding, and uh, you have to you know, compile evidence that will lead people to infer or not infer uh, that uh, Trump intended to obstruct or interfere with the investigation of Michael Flynn. Uh, there has been chatter that Trump was going to uh, somehow get Mueller removed. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it's pretty clear that he has the sheer legal authority to remove Mueller. Uh, it would be, uh, there'd be a political explosion, I think, if he actually did it. Uh, of course, his support among Republicans has been pretty consistent and strong, and so he might be able to get away with it, but it's a high-risk political move, even if it is legally possible. Donald Trump uh, is known for creating a lot of his own problems. If he was to re- remove Mueller, would that be much more of the same? Oh, yes. <laughs> but I think it would be a, a severe escalation of the problems. Uh, I don't think he could expect to... Um, to uh, end the investigation simply by removing Mueller. Somebody else will uh, pick up the the torch. Uh, What were your thoughts on Jeff Sessions' testimony? Uh, I thought it was, um, I don't know the right word, evasive, not terribly revealing. Um, When he's questioned, as I'm sure he will be, by the uh, Mueller's team, uh, he won't be able to uh, dodge and weave in the way uh, that he did uh, at the committee hearing. Uh, He seemed uh, very defensive and almost insulted at the accusations. What does that reveal? Um, A thin skin, uh, Hmm. not much else. Um, Both an innocent and a guilty person would respond in that way. So we don't know anything more uh, from his responses than uh, we did beforehand. Uh, Considering the Comey testimony and then the Sessions testimony, uh, what more have we learned? And does that move the case or the investigation forward? Uh, It does move the investigation forward because uh, we now have testimony uh, that... uh, uh, of, of unusual behavior, like showing everybody out of the room uh, and then uh, making statements about hoping that he'd be able to make the case against Flynn go away. So there's, there's uh, accumulating pieces of evidence that um, the prosecutor or the counsel will uh, look at and decide whether, when you take them all together, uh, you can reasonably infer an intent to obstruct the investigation. What do you think Jeff Sessions' testimony uh, added to this? Many thought that it was inconclusive, that it did not move the investigation forward. Your thoughts on that? Uh, uh, So unlike Comey, he didn't provide details of specific events uh, because he was evasive. Uh, Again, when he's uh, questioned by investigators from Mueller's office, 
I don't think they will let him be as evasive, Mm -hmm. or they will infer from his evasiveness that he's trying to hide something. Uh, And so, although the testimony, you know, this week uh, may not have uh, advanced the investigation, I'm sure that uh, when he's formally questioned uh, by Mueller's team, uh, there will be something that comes of it. The fact that uh, Mueller has announced or it has been announced that, in fact, uh, Trump is being investigated, how does that change the discussion? Uh, I'm not sure it changes it much. I think uh, close observers were, I think, reasonably confident that a methodical investigation would eventually uh, direct the uh, investigators' attention to Trump himself. And it's clear that uh, Mueller is proceeding quite methodically. So what we learned, I think, is that um, we're further along than in in, um, an inquiry into Trump's actions than uh, we thought we might have been. But it's not surprising to discover that uh, Trump is uh, being investigated. Do you think in the end, you know, you, you talked about the gray areas that Trump plays in, uh, not maybe not necessarily illegal, but certainly unethical. Uh, at the end of the day, do you think that's is how this is going to end? Where do you think this is going? Do you think that in the end uh, we'll find out, yeah, it's a little scrupulous, but there's nothing illegal here and nothing really comes of it? Where do you think this is going? Oh, I don't think we have any idea about where it's going to end up. Hmm. Uh, There are so many things uh, still in play that could be resolved favorably to the president or unfavorably to the president. Um, We just can't tell how it's going to turn out. Uh, It seems as if Donald Trump uh, shoots himself more in the foot than others do. Uh, Could he do something to get himself out of this mess or at least make himself not look so guilty? Uh, I think it would be pretty hard uh, uh, testifying under oath in before the public uh, might uh, be able to might get him some breathing space. Uh, on the other hand, it, I find it found it quite striking that before Comey had his very first meeting with Trump. Uh, he was Comey was concerned that Trump might lie. Hmm. Um, so even if Trump testified under oath in public, uh, lots of people would think, well, he's just lying about what he says. So I'm not sure there's much he can do except um, hope that the prosecutor decides that there's just not enough evidence to go forward. And he certainly has laid enough traps for himself that every if he ever did decide to testimony he'd or testify he'd probably be eaten alive. Um, uh, what what about the tapes and talking and, and talk of of recording of, of Comey's uh, meetings with him? Um, Again, it seems that Trump does not want to clear this up. He enjoys the confusion. And the suggestion of tapes that really don't seem to exist, doesn't that prove that? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's uh, he's a person who uh, blusters a lot. And he actually never said that there were tapes. Uh, he, he just hoped that there were none. Uh, he Right. Um, uh, and... You know, so he just wanted to create smoke uh, 
Uh, and at some level, Comey called his bluff. Uh, and, you know, when he's under oath, he'll be asked, are there tapes? And he'll either have to tell the truth or he'll lie. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Do you think it's this smoke, these situations that Donald Trump creates for himself will be his downfall? Or do you think there is something there? Uh, at, at the personal level, uh, I am uh, reasonably confident that there's something there. But... Uh, I don't know whether uh, there's going to be enough evidence to make it a provable case. Um, uh, I, I, I'm not sure that if I were in a jury at this point, I would say there's evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that Trump attempted to obstruct justice. Uh, but, you know, in my heart, I think probably he did attempt to do so. Talk about, uh, if you could, the divisiveness that this has created uh, in America. You know, yesterday we saw that terrible shooting uh, in Virginia at the GOP baseball practice. Uh, and it seemed very ironic that, that Trump came out afterwards and said, you know, uh, we're all here for one reason and, and tried to be inclusive when he spent uh, every waking minute up until now uh, being divisive. What does this do to the country? Well, this is, uh, um, as many people have said, this is a process that has been uh, building up for uh, quite a long time. Uh, uh, you know, when, when President Obama was in office, uh, um, then Mr. Trump uh, uh, engaged in uh, quite, you know, divisive rhetoric. Uh, and and uh, we're just seeing an extension of uh, the kinds of, uh, I don't know, bad ways of talking about each other that's uh, been developing for, for, as I say, for quite a long time. Do you think the shooting in Virginia targeting, specifically targeting politicians, will change this discussion in any way? <laughs> Unfortunately, I think not. Uh, I think we've already seen some efforts to as I would say, uh, treated as a political football um, to gain partisan advantage from it. And and I think the, our system in the U.S. has uh, degenerated so badly that it's going to be very hard to recover from, uh, at least in the short run. What can Democrats do to uh, to challenge this? How can they help the issue rather than just fan the flames? Uh, I think the the best thing the Democrats could do probably is to stay calm and talk about a methodical investigation that will reveal further information uh, and wait for that investigation to uh, go forward. Not to so Democrats shouldn't be uh, you know aggressively pushing forward with uh, uh, oh claims that we now know enough that the president should resign or be removed from office. Just, you know, calm down, keep things calm without without giving him a free pass. I mean, to say there's an investigation and there's reason for the investigation to go forward. 
I agree with, you know, not giving them the, the free pass because, you know, obviously they're the opposition and that's what they're supposed to do. But it seems that they're spending more time throwing mud back at him. They're stooping to his level rather than, st- you know, I'm, personally, I think it would be best for them to step back, let him shoot himself in the foot, let him do whatever he wants to do. And as you mentioned, point out the obvious when, when it needs to be done and then concentrate on what happens next. How do they challenge this? Where's the new leader? Where's the next leader? Where where are the leaders coming from, the next leaders for the Democratic Party? You'd think they'd be working on that as opposed to getting down in the mud with Donald Trump. Uh, Well, I I agree that that's probably the best thing to do. I'm not sure I would characterize them as, as a general matter, getting down in the mud with them, although, you know, some things are um, some... Democrats have uh, made pretty strong statements. Where do you see this one year from now, Mark? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, um, either either uh, continuing to irritate the the sort of body public, or uh, Trump not in office. I think those are the only options. At what point does the American population just become fatigued with this? They're tired of talking about Trump. They want to talk about the country. Uh, um, I think that's really hard to say. Uh, uh, because, yes, I mean, there are issues that we want to conf- need to confront. Uh, but uh, we also don't want to... Many people... Uh, are concerned about confronting them under the leadership of uh, a person who is uh, under criminal investigation. Lots are comparing this to Nixon. Is that fair, or will we see another Watergate out of this? Uh, I I think the comparison is fair, uh, or in one sense, maybe unfair to Nixon, uh, that that, uh, Nixon was clearly more uh, in control of himself and and uh, more competent at what he was trying to do, uh, even though it was, you know, uh, a cover-up and all that sort of stuff. But we're seeing, you know, the, the, the underlying activity is uh, quite similar. Mark Tushnet has been with us, William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Harvard University. Mark, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We talked about this when it first uh, all came to our attention uh, a year or so ago and um, haven't so much now. Uh, but it has become news in the sense that uh, the jury for the Bill Cosby trial uh, deliberating the fourth day and have informed the judge that they are deadlocked, to which the judge says, get back in there and keep digging. Uh, so let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. Of course, uh, you could read her stuff at HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily, and is with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We always appreciate it. Uh, either way, whatever way this case goes, is that it for Bill Cosby's career? Well, I think it has been it for a long time. But, yeah. you know, I'd hate to think that he would feel that, you know, that he was vindicated in some sort if this does end up to be a, um, a hung jury. Now, I do understand that the jury is trying one case. They're not, they're not supposed to consider the other, oh, I don't know, how many is it? 70-plus women who had the same thing happen to them. So when people look at it and think, well, why is this a hung jury? What What is their, you know... 
what's wrong? Why can't they figure out what the answer is? The man mm. is allegedly a predator, drugged women, and sexually assaulted them. So, you know, when you look at this one case, perhaps that's why they cannot come to a unanimous verdict. Uh, the fact that he was, quote, America's dad on the Cosby show for so many years, uh, is that why we're paying so much attention to this? Would we if he was any other actor or person, celebrity? Well, I think that if he was any other actor, this would still be getting news. But because of the persona that he perpetuated for so many years, you know, I remember the Jell-O commercials. Mm, yeah. You know, I remember watching um, the Huxtables. I, I, I remember watching I Spy. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I was I was but a toddler. So let's just <laughs> yeah, that very clear. you had to have it explained to you. You know, but it's you know this man has been in the public eye for decades after decades. So, you know, there are many celebrities whose you know, run in the public eye might be 15 minutes, or it could be 15 years, or it could be 15 days. You know, he has had the luxury of a very, very um, robust career. So, and, you know, let's not also forget, hey, hey, Fat Albert. Yeah. You know, yeah, I watched yeah, that on Saturdays, yeah. too. So mm -hmm. we kind of grew up with Bill Cosby. And when these allegations came to light, at first you thought, well, maybe this is just sour grapes on behalf of one woman, but then another and another and another. So the persona, the way that we view Bill Cosby is as America's father. So to hear that he has allegedly perpetrated such crimes only takes that up to another level. Uh, it seems we were talking a lot about this when these allegations first came up the first time. Well, I guess not the first time, but certainly in this wave uh, over the last year and a half or so. Uh, now, not so much. Why do you think that is? You know, it's interesting. I was saying to my husband, I said, you know, Bill Cosby should send a thank you letter to James Comey. <laughs> You know, yeah. mm. and to Donald Trump, because honestly... Do you think that's what's keeping him out of the headlines? Well, you know, it's true. You know, when you look at where the news is placed, let's say, mm. um, for example, if I look at my Globe and Mail, and on the front page, I'm going to see all, you know, I'm going to see the horrors that have been happening in London. And then I'm going to see an update on uh, Comey and the investigation of Donald, the potential investigation of Donald Trump. And then if I flip in a few pages above the fold or even sometimes below the fold, which still matters to people like me, you'll see um, a feature type story on Bill Cosby. But honestly, when some, when you are enduring bad news, whether you are a person or you are a company, you hope for something to push you off the front pages. And that's exactly um, what has happened with Bill Cosby. Uh, so you think there's so much going on, or is it perhaps that the public has already found him guilty? And whether, well, whether he is or he isn't, he is in the, in the, in the court of public opinion. Well, uh, you know, I think that, you know, the media has an agenda, and the agenda is the news of the day. This week has been particularly busy. You know, you had Jeff Sessions on, um, you know, on, mm -hmm. uh, giving his deposition on uh, Tuesday. Then there was the, uh, the horrible burning of the Grenfell Towers in London. So, you know... Time after time, news after news, you know, you sit in a newsroom, you know, you, you can have an agenda that starts in the morning and gets scrapped by 5 to 12 before mm -hmm. you go on. Yep. So, it, you know, it all depends what the agenda of the day is. And sometimes uh, the producers, you know, decide that and sometimes the world decides that and you have to react. 
Sometimes you could be proactive. Most often you are reactive. You know, we've been hearing this Bill Cosby narrative um, for quite a while now. So you may be correct. There might be a sense of news fatigue. It's like, okay, we know he's a predator. Get it over with already. Tired of seeing him in the headlines. So there is that side of the issue. The other side is is that he's just being overshadowed by more important things. What do you think the reaction is going to be either way once the verdict does come down, whether it's guilty or innocent? Well, you know, if it's not guilty, that is going to push this story back onto the front page. You think so? Well, I do think so, because, you know, guilty would be what everybody expects. Not guilty is what everybody doesn't expect. Even if you look at your newsfeed now, if you just uh, go onto Twitter and already, you know, high up is Bill Cosby trial, you just click on that. And in the last two minutes, just two minutes, you know, there has been, you know, 10 to 15 posts that it, right now that it's a deadlock jury. So, you know, because this is an interesting twist in this saga, it's starting to push its way back up under the agenda. And if he is not found guilty because of a hung jury and because of the demographic makeup of that jury, that's going to put it back on the front page, my prediction. Uh, are you surprised to see Bill Cosby's wife in uh Well, in you know, I, in my own opinion... In my own opinion, I think she's known this has been happening for eons. I think a lot of people did. That was another question I had for you. Are you surprised it took this long? Well, you know what? I think that she was standing by her man. I mean, he is her sole support and sole support of income. So, you know, where is she going to go at this point? And does she really care what other people think? At this stage of the game, probably not. And then there's the other women that he's had, um, you know, by his side. For example, Raven Simone and Keisha Knight Pullum, who he basically, you know, who knows what compelled them to be there except for, for, you know, maybe there was a phone call. If it wasn't for Bill Cosby, you would be nowhere. Yeah. So I also have to wonder about the reputation of the women who chose to support him and whether that will um, potentially put an end to their careers in Hollywood, too. So you can, you know, you can also be guilty by association. It's interesting, too. His lawyer said something along the lines of he's not a criminal. He's just a cheater. Does that play anymore in America? Does that play? Well, you know, I I just don't like that sort of sloughing off of he's just a cheater. You know, you and I have talked about this and I've railed about this before. But, you know, please don't give me the line that boys will be boys. Yeah. You know, why is that okay? It's not okay. Does anybody ever say girls will be girls? Maybe if they're all painting their nails pink, that's the only time that's ever said. Mm. But, you know, the boys will be boys. He's just a cheater. That doesn't make it okay. That doesn't make it any less reprehensible. But it, I think the reason they were doing that was say he's, he, you know, he's this. He's not that, though. Well, that doesn't make that, that doesn't make that, evils. that doesn't well, make I don't know, Scott. Well, it doesn't make one more acceptable than the other. But obviously, there's a difference between a cheater and someone who's a criminal. Well, I don't know. I mean, if you had a daughter and he drugged her and then sexually assaulted her, I think you'd have a hard time deciding whether he was a criminal or not. Well, obviously, if that was the case, you'd consider him a criminal. Um, uh, but again, they're trying to defend him, and and what they're and again, I, I'm not sticking up for him here. Oh, I'm I just know, playing, but I have uh, to tell you that is the most ridiculous <laughs> line I have ever heard. I'm not disagreeing that it's a ridiculous I know you're line. Not disagreeing, but I mean, you know, but you, you do. Look at, but let me ask you this: you do agree there is a difference between someone who commits a criminal activity and someone who is uh, uh, unfaithful to their partner. 
There is yeah, a difference. But you know what? You know, when you talk about um, being unfaithful, there's being unfaithful, and then there's drugging and sexually yes. assaulting and being unfaithful. So yes. he's trying to take the loosest. So, so to answer your question, he's trying to take the loosest definition of being he was just unfaithful to people. I mean, let's move on. You, you know, that might appeal to some people. But I think that is a very small minority of people who would who would uh, uh, subscribe to that theory. And I have to say that, you know, that is just such Bush League. And, oh, my goodness, what type of person do you really have to do to resort to a narrative like that? Uh, you're not mean personally. You're not saying that about me personally, are no, you? No, you're oh, not. Because oh, okay. uh, I was going to start to cry no, there. No, no, no. We're talking about the lawyer, Bill Cosby. Uh, all right. Let's move on. I got to ask you, uh, let's talk Trump. Uh, but before we get to that, and it's sort of related, what are your thoughts on Dennis Rodman in North Korea? Is he our secret weapon? <laughs> Could, you know, is like, think of this, Kim Jong-un, Donald Trump, and Dennis Rodman. I mean, you know, put the three of them together, then Walk write into a, a bar. Exactly. Exactly. It you could know? be a joke. It could be a caption contest. You know, it could be so many things. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I just, you know, Dennis Rodman is out of his mind. And he has been. And why he keeps going to North Korea and he keeps getting media coverage about that because it's almost like a circus. Well, it's a good thing he does get media coverage because then if anything unscrupulous happened to him, at least it would be publicized. Unlike that poor man who came home in a coma. Well, that's true. But the other thing is that, you know, gee, maybe he could he be a secret, a secret weapon? Could we uh, wire up one of his piercings? <laughs> and you don't listen to the conversation, or could we put him in there to try and find out anything? It's not secrets? a. It's not I mean, a piercing. It's not the tallest guy there. You know. <laughs> That's right. They could never see the top of his head. Well, you know, this is it. So it's not yeah, a piercing. It's a satellite thought? dish. I don't know. I mean, oh my goodness. I mean, has the you know the FBI or the CIA actually thought of you know using you know Dennis Rodman as this uh, surveillance uh, conduit? I don't know. But Could they honestly, stop Scott? You might have a point. Could they stop him from going? I mean, that wouldn't look good either, would it? Well, there'd have to be a compelling reason to stop him from going. Um, you know, the fact he's that just he's, making us look bad. How's that? Well, th- that could be one main reason, but you know, uh, obviously Donald Trump doesn't care, or he's just amused by it, or he just has other things on his plate. You know, the first time that Dennis Rodman went to North Korea was kind of like a big deal. So now he's gone again. And, you know, you're talking to me about, you know, earlier with Bill Cosby, you know, do people care about it? Well, I saw, I, I saw that clip and I looked at it with bemusement, not with any sense of seriousness or not with any sense of what we, are the implications of this. I kind of look at, at it as a three-ring circus. Uh, the fact that he took over a copy of The Art of the Deal, does that make you feel differently? To get signed? <laughs> or, or was it signed? I don't know. Maybe it should. Wouldn't that have been nice? You bring him an autographed copy of... Uh... And, and what, Trump's Dennis book. Rodman is going to engineer detente between North Korea and, and the U.S.? That would just be another chapter in this wild and woolly presidency of Donald Trump. I remember a long time ago, like when he first went over writing a blog that he could be the secret weapon. You know, I had my tongue in my cheek. Little did I know that it could be happening. Who knows? Well, uh, who does know? 
one more question before we let you go. At what point uh, we, we've seen Comey testify, we've seen Sessions testify. Uh, there's now talk uh, that Mueller's got him under investigation for obstruction of justice, which seems very ironic because Trump was pressing Comey so hard to admit that he wasn't part of an investigation that now he is, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which I just find absolutely astounding because, again, it's it's more of Trump drawing attention to himself. But my question is, at what point do Americans just become fatigued with this and just say, you know what, I'm sick and tired of listening to Donald Trump, whether it's a tweet or a reaction to something? Well, that's the danger. You know, complacency is the danger. And the media it will keep this story up to the forefront because we have the right to know. Now, there are certain media that, you, that everybody reads and you know what their viewpoint is. There's certain, there are other media that you read and you know what their viewpoint is. So it, it's pretty easy to see where, you know, opinions lie in this landscape. Will people become fatigued with it? I mean, you know, every now and then one of the U.S. networks goes into a uh, Trump stronghold and says, well, would you have voted for him again? Well, I'm disillusioned and I may lose my health care and I may not be able to survive, but yeah, I'd like to vote for him again. So honestly, everything he's doing is, is, is geared towards, you know, the, the voters in three states. Yeah. So, you know, they feel that he's just being picked on. And everybody else cannot believe what's going on. You know, how long has he, be, has he been president now? What, since January? So is that six mm-hmm. months? Mm-hmm. It feels, does it not feel like six years to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, no wonder you're asking me, you know, are people fatigued by this? But there were many people, many, many pundits. I remember once watching uh, Michael Moore, the, mm-hmm. the filmmaker, and he said, in a year he will be impeached. And I have to tell you, I honestly don't think Trump will care. He'll probably just say that he was victimized, that he was part of a mob mentality, that he won, he had the biggest inauguration, and it was fun while it lasted, and we're out. But I will say to you, I was going through my Insta stories today, as I often do, and I see that Ivanka Trump has posted, and she's at a meeting of governors talking about apprenticeships. And I'm thinking... I don't even know what her role is. Hmm. She has no defined role. We don't know what she's doing in the White House other than maybe they brought her in to control her dad. Not working. And here she is helping set policy and to sign, be present at yet another executive show-and-tell order uh, about the expansion of, of apprenticeships in this country. You know, this is being run, the government is being run by people who played politics in, the, in New York, and they call it New York-type politics. Well, guess what, kids? It's not working for you in Washington. Hmm. Uh, getting back to your comment about, you know, he may decide to quit, I don't, how do you think he'll react to that? Because then it will get to a point where no one gives a damn what he says. How will he adjust to not being, you know, he had a hard time adjusting to becoming president. How is he going to adjust when he's not president? You know, he's some, Donald Trump is someone who needs to have the spotlight. There's an old joke about the comedian Bob Hope. And he was very busy, and they said, listen, Bob, go fishing for three days. He came back after one. Why? He said, because fish don't clap. So, you know, <laughs> insert laughter. Thank you very much. Mm. But, but you know, and, and, and Trump is like that. He will, I mean, he has made noise about having a Trump channel. 
I don't, I don't know yeah. who would advertise on it, like aside from the NRA, but he and coal miners, coal miner association yeah. might advertise on it, but he has made noise about having a Trump channel. So everything is sort of a conduit for him. Yeah, I've done that. I've been president. Leave that to the other wonks who want to, you know, wave through the red tape of, of Washington, and I'm going to do this instead. He will find another way to stay in the public eye. I find it ironic that after there was the shooting in Virginia at the GO, in Virginia at the GOP baseball practice, that he came on and said, "You know, we're all here because we love the country. We're all here to do the best." And I'm paraphrasing, of course, and yeah. and, and and said, "We all have to unify. We're all one." And I'm thinking. What? You're the guy that's been the most divisive person in, in in years. Well, you know, here's the thing, and I've commented on this earlier, and, you know, all, you know, Democrats, Democrats and Republicans alike are saying that we need to reach across the aisle. This is ridiculous. You know, we have fomented a lot of hate, a lot of hatred among Americans, and it's leading uh, into um, disasters like this recent shooting at the Virginia baseball practice. Well, until, you know, talk is talk. So if you want to walk the talk, then actually go across the aisle and show Americans some demonstrable example of bipartisan politics. Until then, Mm. it's just talk. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, you're welcome, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.